Hope y'all are doing well. We are in a series called Fields of Harvest, um, and this is basically a kind of an overview, five-week study over Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. So for the first week in Colossians, we looked at Jesus, um, this serving as the foundation for all the things that we're all talking about. Who is this Christ? How does he want us to live? What is his second coming going to look like in the meantime? So uh, that's the first week we looked at Colossians 1, the Christ hymn. Last week we looked at Colossians 3, and it gave us specific directions as Christians, how we're supposed to live, killing sin in our lives, what it means to be made alive, etc. So, um, so far we've just talked about Christ, who he is, and then we talked about our individual lives. Now we're going to move into a corporate sense of what our lives should look like, how we're supposed to live in this corporate sense. Next week, I'm going to talk about First Thessalonians 5 um, and what, what our uh, appropriate understanding of the eschaton or eschatology or Jesus' final coming and what that kind of thinks uh, it's supposed to look like and how we're supposed to live. And then after that, we'll go into Second Thessalonians um, and we'll finish out the series. But that's what, uh, that's what we're doing right now. Um, so today, we're going to be looking at First Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you don't have one, you can look underneath you there and take that blue and white one. Keep it. It's all yours or give it to someone um, and, you know, they can have a Bible. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. Before I do, I, I want to say thanks for uh, those that, that gave gifts to us for our baby shower. It was awesome. Um, my wife's extremely pregnant. She's the one back there fanning herself because she's so pregnant. Um, that's what happens in August or almost August when you're nine months pregnant. You're always hot. Even like in the freezer, you're hot. So um, <clears throat> anyway, we, we got a uh, shower done, given to us yesterday and we're, we're very thankful. So thank you for all that. Um, let me pray and then we're going to jump into First Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word that you've given to us. We thank you for a, um, the creation of the church a body of believers that come together <clears throat> and can uh, sit under your word. <clears throat> I pray for myself, Lord, that you would help me speak truth this morning, that you would fill me with the spirit, you would keep me from error, and that all the things that would be true and helpful and that would grow our, our, our faith in you, that you would help me say those things. I, I confess, Lord, my utter need for you. I pray that a final outcome of this sermon would be that we would all desire to share our souls with one another, that we would allow ourselves to be truly known by each other. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians 2. Um, if you see the title, you can go ahead and put up the title. The title of the sermon is Sharing Your Souls with One Another. Um, that comes straight out of verse 8. If you look at verse 8, which is really one of the most amazing texts in the Bible, Paul says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we're not ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also um, our own selves. Selves is not the actual word there. It's soul. It's the Greek word psuche, nice little ch in there. It's, it's talking about not just kind of like a generic, impersonal 
self is talking about I'm sharing the depth of my soul with you. So Paul's describing a relationship that he had built with the Thessalonians, by the way, which happened in a term of about three weeks or so. He had become so, they had become so dear to him that he was willing to, we're going to get into this, what this means in a little bit, but literally share his own soul with them. The, the inner seat of his emotions of who he is. So that's what we're talking about here. That's, that's, when we're talking about uh, life, Jesus is built on Jesus. That's what we talked about two weeks ago. And then a week ago, what does our life look like as a Christian? Um, And how should we live until he comes? Now today, this how should we live in community until he comes is centered in on this particular verse. That we are willing to share our inner emotions, the seat of who we are with people. That's how we should live until Jesus comes. That's, that's the whole concept of what we're going to be talking about. And I'm going to unpack about what that means exactly. It's going to be built on community group leaders here at Remedy Church. But that's, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about sharing our souls with one another. John Stott, looking at this particular text, says, This passage reveals more about the heart and soul and emotions of Paul than perhaps any of his other writings. So we know Paul is the theologian. We know Paul is the doctrine giver. Here, Paul is not talking about that. Instead, he's talking about himself, his heart, his soul, and his emotions. Uh, This is exactly why I've chosen this particular text as we're going through, rather than some others as we're going through the journey. Um, John Stott also says, No one who is engaged in any form of ministry can fail to be touched and challenged by what Paul writes here. You say, thank goodness I'm not in the ministry. Well, you are if you're a believer. So every person here should be both touched and challenged by what Paul writes here. Now, in this particular chapter, Paul is clearly trying to remind the Thessalonians, not of doctrine, but of deeds. If you look at it, it says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, um, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of conflict for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive so we weren't doing anything impure we weren't trying to in, in almost every sense when Paul uses this term impurity he's talking about sexual impurity so while I was there with you in the Thessalonians I did, we did not try to do anything that would be thought of as sexually impure um, with any of the people there or any attempt to deceive. So all he's talking about here is the way he behaved in front of them, the way he lived in front of them, not the doctrine. And then he says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God, who that, that test is more like examines, examines our hearts. For we <clears throat> never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext of greed. Again, all he's talking about is the way he lived in front of them. God is witness, nor do we seek glory from people. So we're going to keep going and see it. But the whole point that I'm trying to help you see is that in this particular text, Paul is not trying to remind them of the doctrine that he taught them in that short time that he was there, but the deed. So Paul went in, preached the gospel at, Thessal- at Thessalonica, he left, and then some Jewish people came in. They didn't like what Paul was trying to say. Uh, they're trying to diminish Paul. They're trying to diminish his message and everything. Paul's writing back to them and saying, hey, it doesn't say the doctrines. He says, remember how we lived in front of you. So Paul's aim here is not orthodoxy, doctrine, but orthopraxy, the way we live. So because of that, 
Obviously, there's serious implications, applications for us. As we're looking at this, of course, Paul cares about doctrine. Of course, we care about doctrine. But in this, the major applications you're going to get today are things that should revolve around the way that you live. The way that you live. And, and they're all found centered in on the gospel, which we'll see um, as Paul centers in on the gospel in verse 4. Um, so this section, uh, chapter 2, is built on the statement from 1 Thessalonians 1.5. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. So he's, he's commenting in chapter 2 about the way, these, these, the way they lived or how, what kind of men they proved to be. So he's talking about um, as ministers, this is the way that we lived. This is how we lived as ministers or servants or leaders in Thessalonica for the short time that we tried to plant the gospel and the church in Thessalonica. So that's Paul's context. He's talking about how he and the others that were with him served as ministers and how they served as leaders in the people of Thessalonica. Similarly, if we're going to take that and we're going to apply it to our church, our context, so that we can have a very application-oriented sermon for us. In the same way, our community group leaders uh, at Remedy most closely aligned to this kind of frontline work that Paul's referring to, that he's talking about that they did. The, the most frontline ministry people in our church are our uh, community group leaders. They're the ones that are most intimately involved with you their main job description is community mission and care. They want to get you in community and that you're doing community. They want you to hear about what's going on in regard to mission and leading commission and, and, and mission. And when there's things going on that where people need help, care. So notice I didn't say Bible study leader. They will lead you in Bible study, but their main job description is community mission care. Community mission care over and over and over. This is what I say. So while we're looking at this, uh, there are certainly applications that we can make for staff for, for churches. There's applications we can make for elders and pastors of churches. And there's Definitely applications we can make for community group attenders. And you as a church should listen as a community group attender if you're not a community group leader to this sermon. Thinking about how you can love and support and, and encourage your community group leader or how you can one day aspire to be a community group leader. Um, so the most, I think, uh, application or the close, most close application that we can look at as we're looking at this text for us would be community group leaders. So this sermon is six for Remedy, six key traits for community group leaders. And then I put a little parenthetical statement because I want to make sure you're all going to still listen. And the group. <laughs> so every one of you still have to, have to uh, listen um, or, or listen and how, how it applies to you. So people in groups, you need to make sure that you are thinking about these things, applying them to your lives. And at the same time as you hear these things, not just thinking about how you can apply these things to your own personal Christian life, but also how you can pray these six specific things for your community group leader. And maybe I should say this also, if you're not in a community group, how the Holy Spirit should be pushing you right now to see the absolute importance of being in a, in a community group at Remedy Church. So, Six key traits. I didn't put the six because I, I didn't want to scare y'all, but I let the cat out of the bag, if you will. Six key traits for community group leaders and the group um, here at Remedy Church. So let's go ahead and look. Verse one. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. So Paul's referring to going to the Thessalonians and, and, and preaching the gospel to them. He says, but though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi. That's Acts 16, whenever... Uh, 
Paul was preaching the gospel, the, the crazy uh, lady that had the demon that could foretell futures, Paul, uh, she was following around for many days saying, these people are servants of the Most High God, proclaiming you the way to salvation. It says that she literally followed them around for days and having Paul having become so annoyed, it literally says that, like she screamed that in his ear for days as he walked around and tried to preach the gospel. He got so annoyed, he cast that demon out of her that could foretell the future because she really could foretell the future she had owners the owners used her as a means of making money and so when he cast the demon out the owners automatically saw we don't have a way to make money anymore so you know Bubba and Jethro couldn't buy you know four-wheel trucks anymore and so they're ticked off and so they they find Paul and Silas and all them and they say these guys right here that have come into Philippi they are liars and they're throwing our town into confusion. And so the town riots, they get Paul, they beat the mess out of him, they throw him in jail, they have the worship service at midnight, the earthquake happens, the jailer's about to kill himself, but he doesn't. Paul tells him the gospel and he gets saved. That's, that's kind of, but Paul was mistreated, he was whipped, he was thrown in jail, all because he cast a demon out of this woman. And so Paul's referring to that particular thing. He goes, you Thessalonians know how we were shamefully treated. And he's, the whole point of that, that little excursus was to help you see hardships came to Paul, but he still pressed on. Even in the midst of hardships, he didn't stop and say, forget this. This is just too much. As a ministry leader, when it gets tough, I, I, you know, I have the, the right to, to just say, you know, I, I quit. He didn't do that. He goes, you know how we were shamefully treated at Philippi. And you know, and this is really interesting phrase. I love it. We had boldness in our God. It didn't say we had boldness. We had boldness in our God. In other words, to equip us, to strengthen us, to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict or hardships. So as we're looking at that and we're applying it to our first context, our, our, our primary context, the first thing I want you to see is this. For community group leaders and you, for community group leaders is this. You will boldly go the distance no matter the hardships. You will boldly go the distance no matter the hardships. Community group leaders, you and I both know that as you minister and do life and get connected to and really get to know people, that they're going to have hardships going on in their life that are just going to break your heart. They're going to do things that are, are very difficult. And those that are in groups that have been a part of going through some of those things, you, you know these times are tough. But as Paul had boldness in our God to continue in and be steadfast through community group leaders and people in groups, you will also boldly go the distance no matter. So this is what we mean. There's obstacles that Paul faced. There's going to be obstacles that you face. But what we mean by, I, I think, thinking about going the distance, I think about it in twofold, a twofold manner. One, we're going to continually go the distance in seeking to fulfill the mission. We're, we're not going to, even though hardships come, even though difficulties come, even though we try something and it fails, even though we have tried to get our group motivated to go reach the Winthrop campus or our little group or whoever it is, and it seems to fall on its face, we're not going to quit. Even though these difficult circumstances keep coming to us, we're going to continually go the distance. Paul here could have, when things were tough, just said, forget it, but he didn't. So we're going to go the distance in the mission. Community group leaders, you're going to go the distance. You're not going to quit. No matter how hard it is, you're going to keep pressing on until the Lord calls you home to fulfill the mission in regard to leading your 12 to 15 people, continually pushing. But I also think a second way, 
I think a second way. So that's the mission, but I also think more, more, more closely is that you're going to go the distance with your people. You're never going to give up on them. They're going to they're gonna have seasons where they walk away for a little bit. They're going to have seasons where they come back. Um, I, I've told this story many times whenever I was in seminary. Uh, I had an opportunity to play inter, uh, intramural basketball. And I, just, I was a part of a group. Uh, we met on Tuesdays or Thursdays. I don't remember what day it was. We met on some day of the week. And that was the same night as basketball that spring. And so I decided that I wanted to play intramural basketball. And so uh, every, whatever night it was, I would go play intramural basketball instead um, because I just, I loved it. And so my community group leader, like, hounded me, like, over and over. Hey, what are you doing? Why are you missing? I got intramural basketball. This, this just happened to fall on community group night. Why are you doing that? Were you kidding me? You're missing, you're missing community group. We called it home group there for basketball. Uh, and over and over and over, he would just be all over me saying, um, this is more important than your basketball game. It's, it's absolutely more important. Not only are you missing out on group, the group is missing out on you. You never know if the Lord would have you say something to people. He was all over me. And I, I with my stubborn, hard-headedness, said, I'll be back when basketball's over. And that's the truth. After basketball was over, I, came, I, was, I was gone for a good three, four months. Um, not a good example right here. Well, several years later, as I was going in ministry, I remember being highly convicted by this. And he, this was a, I, I still go up to the seminary here and there. And I remember when I was with Jeff, uh, my community group leader at the time, I had to say, Jeff, you know, it's like five years later, but I have to repent. I, you were absolutely right. I chose, and he remembered. He didn't forget either. He remembered. Yeah, I remember that. Absolutely, I forgive you. Um, I'm glad you would actually see it now. And so, there will be times, not just go the distance mission, but go the distance with your people. People will have roller coaster lives up and down that are going to pull them in and out. Community group leaders, you're going to pursue them. You're going to go the distance with them. You're not just going to write them off and say, well, I guess they're done. Like Jeff, you're going to call them. You're going to be strong and encouraging and um, challenging, and you're going to exhort them back. So you're going to go the distance with people. And also, just go the distance with um, Whenever tragedy hits, you're going to be there with them and walk them through that tragedy. And that's, that's absolutely crucial that you're there. They're going to never forget that. You're not going to know what to say, and there is nothing to say. What means more is that you're there. That's all that means is that you're there. So um, both of these were done by Paul. He went the distance in the mission. He went the distance with the people. I just want to make sure when I talk about boldness, you're going to boldly go the distance. I, I, I hinted at it, but I want to make sure we see that it says... Boldness in our God. So let's be clear here. The first and foremost boldness that we have is in God. As believers, we're not bold in ourselves. We're not thinking too highly of ourselves that we got it. We're boldness in God. And as we have boldness in God, that spills over to give us boldness to lead our groups or lead our people or people in groups to lead your families. So you will boldly go the distance because of God. No matter the hardships, that's the first trait of a community group leader is that you just don't ever give up, ever. Keep going. Verse three and four, I, I, man, I love this. I love a lot about it. For, for, all, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we too 
not, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests or examine our hearts. The phrase I want to key in on there is the very first phrase in four. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So community group leaders and even people of God. The truth is, if you're in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, you have literally been entrusted with the gospel. Now, it's based on something, but let's go ahead and put up number two. So a key trait for community leaders is that you understand the reason and the weight of being entrusted with the gospel. There's two things that we're saying. You've been entrusted with the gospel for two reasons. Number one, because you've been approved by God. So it's gospel-centered. This approved This verb approved is in the perfect tense, indicated that it began in the past and it continues to always be true in the present. And you live in the present, so it's always true. So we're talking about the justification that you have been declared innocent by God and that innocence or right standing now with God is true in that particular point where you trusted Christ and it's always true. You're always approved now by God and Christ. And now that you are approved, now that you are justified, That's the first thing, that you've been entrusted with the gospel, so you understand that it's based on my justification of Christ, not anything I've done, but you also understand the weight of being entrusted with the gospel. I mean, just imagine if if I was like a millionaire, right? And I came to you and I said, I literally am going to give you a million dollars right now. I'm entrusting you with it, and I want you to spend it as wisely as possible. I want you to be a philanthropist, and I I want you to find awesome, worthy, Christ-centered causes, and your job for the next 10 years is to spend $1 million in the most Christ-honoring way, I don't think that you would be flippant. I don't think that you would put it off until nine years, 11 months, and the last month go find something to throw it at in the last month and say, yeah, what I did was uh, I gave it to uh, Wells in Africa. I don't think that we would do that. I think that we would, re- which is a worthy cause, but I would say we would research, we would think, and we would say, I've been given a million dollars or $10 million or whatever it is, and my, my task that's been given to me is to, since I've been entrusted, is to spend it in the most Christ-honoring, wise way to be the best philanthropist I could. I mean, this is no different than the gospel. You have been entrusted with the most precious thing there is. Christ has entrusted you with it. And it's not something to just flippantly say, well, I've got, but I don't have to do anything with. But instead, in the same way, we want to think as strategically and as wisely and as, um, as the best steward that we can be to steward this gospel, to be as giving as we can to tell people. So community group leaders, you understand the weight of being entrusted with it. You understand that this, this idea of being entrusted with the gospel is huge, and you are to share it as as often and as freely and as, as much as you possibly can with the people in your group and encourage them to know how to because it's all based on the fact that you've been approved. You've been approved. Your justification has already been given. Let me ask this question. Community group leaders and, and even people, even people, how does it hit you? How does it strike you? How deeply does it affect you down in your stomach that you have been entrusted with the most precious riches of God when it comes to the gospel. You don't think that it's, it's more important than being entrusted with $10 million. More important. 
But I think sometimes we just forget that because it's just so common. It's just so every day. And every Christian's got it. But don't think that way. Think about you. How does it strike you that you have been entrusted with the creator of the world with one of his most precious messages ever to declare it to other people? I think that it should reroute the way that we live our lives. I think that it should form everything about how we walk in our lives. We've been entrusted with the gospel and the entrusting springs out of the approving based on the fact that God now approves us because of Jesus's death and his cross for us, he now has entrusted us. I'll say it differently. The gospel approves you before God and is entrusted to you by God. The gospel carries you because you've been approved and you carry the gospel, both. And it's a huge, huge, huge weight. So community group leaders, you understand this. You understand that your entire ministry and people in the community group, you understand the entire reason why you're together is based on the gospel. It's based on what Christ has done, his death, burial, and resurrection for us on our behalf, defeating Satan, sin, and death so that we can receive eternal life forever. All sin vanquished before the Lord, and we stand before him as absolute free worshipers forever with him, giving him all the glory for what he's done. That's what we're talking about. I mean, that's just, I would say it this way. It's pretty significant, pretty significant in the life of believers. It is one billion degrees in this building every Sunday now. Anyway. Um, all right, verse five, verse five. So first one is that you will go the distance. You do not quit. The second one is that you have been entrusted with this most precious resource, the gospel, this message. The third one, the third one. And I would say, while this is directed towards community group leaders, every community group member needs to listen to this one. Verse five. And it, we take a little bit out of verse three to, to talk about verse five when he talks about, you know, we didn't, we didn't do this for impurity, uh, for, for sexual favors or something, but let's just stay with verse five. And verse five is, there's enough in there to make my point. For we never came with words of flattery. So we weren't blowing smoke. We weren't just trying to let you hear what you wanted. But this next phrase is where we'll center in on and everything can be grabbed out of other verses to make the point that he's making here in verse four. As you know, nor right here, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor with a pretext for greed. Our coming to you, the Thessalonians, to serve you, to tell you about Jesus was not for the primary purpose of us gaining we didn't come so we could gain. We came so you could get. That's basically what he's saying. Our primary motive was not what we could get, but instead what we could give. So here's the third trait of a community group leader. And I would say every community group participant. This is what Jeff was trying to pound in my head. Your dominant mindset is to give to your community, not get from your community. Your dominant mindset is to give to your community, not to get. Now, let me just make the concession. Yes, you're going to get. I, I realize that. But only if everybody comes to give. If everybody comes to get, nobody gets. Because nobody's given. But if everybody comes to give, the natural byproduct is that we will receive. 
So we have to. Our dominant mindset is every group, every time I'm with them, every day I wake up and I text or email or Facebook or whatever it is how you communicate with the people in your group, my dominant goal is to give. Christ is all this morning for you. Send. It might be a tough morning for you, but Jesus is for you this morning. Send. Call. I don't know what's going on, but I heard last night you had some prayer requests, and I just want to let you know I'm praying for you. I'm there for you. If you need anything, let me know. I want to give. This is how our dominant mindset in our groups and in really our life, but community group leaders especially for you. Our desire is to give. Acts 20, 35, Paul reminds us of the words of Jesus. Remember the words of the Lord, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Over and over in this particular text, Paul says, you know, you remember, or you're a witnesses. All these things are reminding them of what they the Thessalonians actually experienced by Paul, and he's telling them how he gave to them. I gave. Remember what I did. You know what I said. You're a witness to what I did. He's over and over trying to remind them of how he gave. Everyone, by the way, has something to give. Everyone here. If you don't think you have something to give, you're wrong. Let, let me make sure you realize that everyone has something to give. Um, because of God's word and what it tells us, when you're a Christian, you have Christ, Romans 8.10. You have the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.19. You have the word of God, 1 Corinthians 2.13. You have spiritual gifts, 1 Peter 4.10. You're a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And John 4 says that we're a fountain. And John 7 says that we're a fountain. So it's not up for debate. It's not a matter of how you feel that day. Every single Christian has something to give. You need to trust the Lord that this is true because these are the things he's declared of you. So your primary, primary dominant mindset in community is to give, not to get. And yes, you will get when you do that. You will. When things are tough, people will give to you. People will help you. People will pray for you. People will be there for you. But we approach community to give. We approach community to give. And so community group leaders, whenever you are leading your groups, your main desire is to pour out your heart in a similar way that Paul does to them, to lead them with all that you have. This is a definite high calling, I think, at Remedy Church on the front lines. And so it isn't something we remind ourselves once a week when it's community group night that we're responsible for, but we think about it every day. We think about it every day, how can I give? How can I give? Well, that's a lot, Fud. I mean, I'm not even paid. I'm not even paid for this. Like, I've got my job and my family and this, I'm supposed to, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. That your dominant mindset is to give. And as you do that, and this is just what I've witnessed over and over, as you do that and your people seeing you do that, they do that as well. So as you model it, they do it. As you don't model it, they don't do it. So be givers. Don't just like hold your community group leader to that standard and not do it yourself. Every one of you. Be givers. Next one. Um, This is uh, verse 6. 
verse 6. Actually, you'll see on, the, on, the, uh, on this one, it'll say verse 6, FF, and that just means and following. That's just theological talk for and following. But it says, nor did we seek the glory from people, whether you, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So what he's saying there is we did not seek glory from people. Therefore, what we can deduce from that is that we sought the glory of God. We sought the glory of God. So the fourth trait is this. Your ultimate aim for everyone, your ultimate aim for everyone you lead is the glory of God. The ultimate aim that you are seeking after as a community group leader for you and everyone in your group is we're seeking after the glory of God. The, the verse 6, FF just means verse 6 and all the way down to 12 makes that point. Verse 6 and following. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Um, and there's, there's, there's two facets on, on what I'm talking about when you're aiming for the glory of God. There's two facets. Um, I've got two little things I want to say here. Let me, let me, let me say this other thing first. Um, the logical steps of Paul, uh, Paul's thoughts regarding making much of God and not himself. In verse 5 and 6, he didn't try to make much of himself. On the, verse 7 and 8, on contrary, he decisively made little of themselves and served. In verse 8, he gave them the gospel and he gave them his souls, indicating that he wanted to make glory of God primary and not himself. Verse 9, uh, and not making much of themselves, he, he was striving to not be a burden to them financially. He's going to say that soon. And verse 9, as a way to make much of God and not of himself, he proclaimed the gospel to them because he had been entrusted. So he actually says that he proclaims the gospel to them. Another way he tries to make much of God and not himself in verse 10 is that he, um, as a means of living, he wants to be holy and righteous and blameless before them, making much of God's holiness and not himself. And another way he wants to make much of God and not himself in verse 11 is that he wants to develop others by exhorting, encouraging, and charging them. We're going to come back to those things in just a second. But let's... Let's concentrate here on the glory of God. So community group leaders, there's, there's two ways I want you to think about in leading your people in regard to um, making the glory of God primary. I think they're both here in the text. They're both here in the text. The first one is it's intent, you aim for the glory of God or you lead for the glory of God or two ways to, to aim at that with, with your group is it's done by intentionally not making about, make it about the leader but about making it about Jesus. Verse 6a, nor did we seek glory from people. The leaders intentionally, with everything in them, make it that it's not about them. They point to Christ whenever there's compliments given or whatever. You say, thank you, praise Jesus. You intentionally make it not about you. One way that you point yourself and your group to aim at the glory of God in your group and the church and your personal lives, is that you make it not about you. You make it not about you. But instead, you make it about Christ. You just, it's, you're always thinking about that. That's verse 6a. Another way is in verse 10. Verse 10, this is the second way. In your group, you can ultimately make it about the glory of God and not about yourself. The leader. Now, I'm just speaking to the leader right now, um, but everybody should listen. Your witness, and God also, how this is it right here. How do you aim for the glory of God as a leader? How holy, how righteous, and how blameless was our conduct? You make it about God's glory and not your own by intentionally in your own personal life seeking after holiness. Holiness is with every fiber of your being sought after. 
I mean this in the most stringent terms, if that's the right word. That means like a strong, I think. So here's what, here's what I, let me give you an example. Whenever I was in high school or college, I was like 17 or 18, um, back in Irmo, really more in Chapin, there's this bridge and there's like a, it's like a 40 foot bridge, right? And so, uh, we would go there during the summers and we would jump off the bridge all the way down 40 feet is awesome. And I love that kind of stuff. So when you're, when you're coming onto the bridge, there's a sign here that says no diving from bridge. Perfect. So I'm going to go down here, and right when I get up there, I'm going to stand up there. I'm going to look both ways. Don't see any police officers, and I'm, jump, I'm jumping. Maybe I'm going to dive. Maybe I'm going to go feet first. I don't know. One of those two, but one of, we're going to see. Um, because I don't see a cop, right? So one day I'm standing there, and I'm, I'm about to jump off. Um, and me and my friend, his name's Guy, uh, we're about to jump off. And we look both ways. We don't see anything. And we jump feet first. And as we're jumping feet first, you have to swim about, I don't know, 30 yards or so back over to the edge. And we climb up to the top of the hill. As we get to the top of the hill, there's a police officer standing there waiting for us and greeting us as we walk up the hill and writing us a ticket for I don't know how much, a hundred and something dollars. You're jumping off the bridge. And I was like, that's a ticket? You're going to write me a ticket for that? I was was freaking out. I I thought I was in trouble. I thought I was going to jail. When you're 17, you think everything's wrong, right? Um, So I had no idea. Well, um, I go back. And I look at the sign, and it says, no diving from bridge. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Um, I jumped feet first. I really think I can get out of this. And so I go to my dad, and dad's got this lawyer. And so we, I go to the lawyer, and I talk to him. Like, for some reason, he did it pro bono, which that doesn't happen. So anyway, um, I go, and I say, well, the sign says, no diving from bridge. When the cop pulled up, he saw me jumping feet first. And so technically... From what the cop saw, I did not break the law because I did die. But did the cop didn't see that? He wasn't there at that particular time. And so I went to, the, we went to my court date. The cop was there not expecting me to show up with a lawyer. And the lawyer stands up. He goes, don't say anything. I'll talk. I'm saying. So he stands up there and he goes through this whole spill about how um, the sign says no diving. He jumped feet first. He was not breaking the law technically. I don't think that you can make this. The cop's over there just steaming mad. And the guy says, I move for dismissal. And the cop goes, Dismissal, yes, that's fine. Cop, judge, bang, dismissed. I'm out of it. Don't have anything. Because technically, from what the cop saw, I wasn't breaking the law. Right? This is what I mean. All right? I want you to, I want you to as, a, as a believer in Jesus, as a community group leader, you are never, ever found saying, well, technically, it wasn't really a sin. Technically, I wasn't really, no one saw it. You are so seeking after holiness in your life that the mindset of technically isn't in you. You don't live your Christian life parsing words regarding sin. If, if sin's over here, you're not doing this and saying, well, technically I'm not. Instead, you're running towards Christ. So no, no one's asking you and you're never having to say, well, technically I'm not at the edge. That, as a Christian leader, or even as a Christian, when we're talking about your ultimate aim is leading for the glory of God, you're not doing this right here and saying, well, technically I'm not, officer. This is not how Christian leaders, or even I think Christians live. We're not found parsing out what we think could or could maybe not be sin, because we're on the other side of the field pursuing Christ and holiness. Pursuing holiness You won't find people saying, well, technically, maybe, uh, if they're pursuing after holiness with everything they have. You don't live 
that way. John Stott says, happy are those Christian leaders today who hate hypocrisy and love integrity. They hate, well, technically in parts and words. They have nothing to conceal, nothing to be ashamed of, who are well known for who they are and what they are and who are able to appeal without fear to God and the public as their witnesses. You can be my witnesses of the way I live. I'm happy to do that. You don't have hidden stuff going on in your life. As a Christian leader, you are pursuing holiness because the ultimate aim for you and your group is the glory of God. That's everybody. All right. That's, nor did we seek glory. Verse seven. This is where it gets pretty astounding. Look at this. But we were gentle among you like nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you. I'm going to stop there because we're going to keep going. But this term affectionately desirous leapt off the page at me. Um, Affectionately desirous. You have within you a selfless, deep love for other people. You are affectionately desirous of them. This is, I feel like I don't need to say this, but it's obvious city. But this is in the most plutonic terms. Okay, you are affectionately desirous of the people that you lead. You love them as your brother and sister in Christ, deeply. So I think this is so important that it stands out as its own trait. You have, number five, a selfless love for others. You have a selfless love for others. I'm not saying a selfie love, (laughs) a selfless love. You don't even own one of them sticks. Like you don't even, your arms are short. I don't know. You have a selfless love for others. Let me, let me pause and say, in my own life, this is a difficult thing for me. I, I don't know anybody that operates on a more selfish level than me. I, I, I seem to battle it constantly. Maybe you don't have that battle, but it is a, A very difficult battle in my own life. And as Christian ministers, what should be true is this. I'm selfless. I am not thinking of me first. I should not put my needs first. My group, my Christian family, my community that I'm in, they come first. Obviously Jesus first, but we know what I mean. When it comes to others. I am affectionately desirous. The way that you remedy selfishness is affectionately desirous. You love people. And if you don't have it, you beg God for it. God, make me love them. Cause it to happen in my heart. I want it. What does that look like? Now, in the context, this is what it looked like for Paul. In verse 9, he says, If you remember, brothers, Our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel of God to you. Verse 9. So in the context, Paul is saying, um, I'm going to actually make my own money in this town uh, instead of being a, and pay my own way in order to eat so that I'm not any type of financial burden to the people that are here so that I can proclaim the gospel of God to them. That's how I'm going to demonstrate my affectionate desires of them. I want to be no burden whatsoever so that no one can ever say, the gospel of God isn't free because you didn't, you didn't have to pay anything for me. That's what, 
that's the way Paul demonstrated. But let's, let's take those terms he uses and apply it to what I think community group leaders, what your life would look like when it comes to being affectionately desirous. Same thing, verse, verse nine. You're willing to labor and toil in the lives of others. Labor and toil isn't dilly-daddle and pick and maybe kind of get your hands dirty, right? It's labor and toil. It's getting your hands down in there. You're elbow deep. Same, same phrasing. We worked night and day. You're willing to give your nights and days for these people. Your very lives are, are concentrated towards them. And lastly, it says there in verse nine, another way that you'll do it, not only will you get labor and toil, not only will you give your nights and days, but you will proclaim the gospel to them when they don't want to hear it and when they do. It's easy to proclaim it when they want to, but you'll proclaim it when they don't. This is what the being affectionately desirous looks like. I want you to notice how Paul describes his selfless love for them. He uses the mother-father relationships. You can see it in verse 7 for the mother when he says, but we were gentle among you like nursing mother taking care of her own children. What mother would get up in the middle of the night, walk all the way over to the baby's room whenever they're crying and just stand there and do nothing? No. The mother that enters the room to to serve this child at this particular moment would be so gentle that she would feed him. And he says, in the same way, Paul says, in the same way, I selflessly led you with gentleness, willing to take care of you. That's the mother's side, but he also uses the father's side when he says it in verse 11. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you to his own glory. So this selfless love takes physical demonstrations like mothers who are gentle and take care of their mothers, but also like fathers who who exhort and encourage and charge or challenge those in their group to walk in this manner that's worthy of Christ. So people in groups receive this from your leaders. Receive both the gentleness and their desire to care for you and receive their exhortations and encouragement and challenges. Not as, I can take that into consideration, but instead as one who loves you, who has a, who has a affectionate desire for you that you would walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Assume that they have correct motives as they try to challenge you, not bad motives. If they say, I think that you should try this in your spiritual life, don't think that they're just trying to make you work hard. But instead, because they're affectionately desires, they have the best motives for you to walk in Christ and you should say, I should, I should really listen and try to do that. That's something I should go after. Both the father and the mother demonstrations are products of love, the gentleness and taking caring, and the exhortation, encouragement, and, and challenges. Both of those are products of love. So, group leaders, selfless love. This might be my last. This is my last, and this is my favorite. So, verse 8. So, being affectionately desired, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own souls because you had become very dear to us. So, the number six is this. You are willing to be vulnerable and share your soul with your community. You're willing to share your soul. <clears throat> this is psuche. This is the breath, the vital force that animates the body. This is um, the seat of the feelings and the desires and the affections of the person. You're willing to share that 
portion of yourself with the other people in your life. And where the gospel is flourishing, people share their souls. Where the gospel is flourishing, people share their souls. Not only are we willing to share the gospel of God, but also our very souls. Deep, the sharing of the souls is the building or making of deep relationships. So deep and meaningful relationships are at the heart of Christianity. They're at the heart of Christianity. As a believer in Jesus, you should have deep, deep relationships. So let's ask this. What does it mean to share your soul with someone? It doesn't mean to share the gospel. Look, not only were we willing to share with you the gospel of God, but also ourselves. So we shared the gospel and we shared our souls. So sharing this, your soul with someone isn't just sharing information. It, it might involve that, but it's not that. Because he says, not only were we willing to share the gospel of God, but we were also willing to share our soul with you. So it's more than just an information transfer to them about the things of God. There's more to it. If, if me sharing my soul with my wife was me just sharing information with her, I think she would feel kind of shortchanged. She might feel shortchanged anyway in the marriage. I'm just kidding. But like she, she would not say, like, that's, yeah, you're sharing your soul with me because you're, you're always giving me information. Right? So that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about deep, meaningful relationships. You're willing to be vulnerable and share your soul with your community. I, I, I think all of us can see how this is not just applicable to the community group leader, but everybody in this room. We're going to share our soul with people. Don't forget that Paul is willing to share his own soul with these people after having ministered for just a few weeks. Because this is God's economy and that's how things work. That the Lord's love in us and through us is so strong. I would submit to you that if you would give yourself in the Christian community and share your soul, that only after a few weeks you would be saying the same thing. Like Paul, I'm so affectionately desirous. I'm willing to share not only the gospel, God, my own soul with you. Mark Howell, a pastor commentator, says, you share your heart and your life with those you serve because you endeavor to make their lives better. You endeavor to make their lives better. So in this particular text about sharing your soul, I want to I conclude this way. John Piper gives us a little bit of understanding on the what, how, and why of sharing your soul. This is what he says. What is it to share your soul? It's not just sharing the gospel. You've shared your own soul. You've not just shared your soul when you shared information, even if it's the most valuable information. It's not just working hard for someone. The giving of the soul is not just information or work. When you share your soul, you let a person, you let a person uh, see into you what is really there. You don't conceal your true feelings about things. A shared soul is a shared passion or a shared fear, or a shared guilt, or a shared longing, or a shared joy. And where the gospel is flourishing, that's where people will share their souls, their guilt, their joy, their fear, their longings, and their passions. This is what we're talking about. You're opening up who you are. And because of the gospel, you realize no one's going to say, what? Because anything that's bad is forgiven. Anything that's good, you give glory to God. And you're literally opening up who you are. You're going to be vulnerable and you're going to share your soul with, this is who I am. And you're going to hear that and treat that in the most gospel-centered way you can. Well, those things are forgiven. And those things are awesome. Glory to God for those things. This is what you're called to in community. Literally to share 
your soul with people. How does it happen? Well, first thing, it has to happen where the gospel is flourishing. The gospel must be there. Believe, uh, leaders, you want people to do this in your, in your group? Let the gospel flourish. Because where the gospel is flourishing and they know that there's no condemnation when they share their soul, which the things in their soul they would rightly think would condemn them, they realize no condemnation. The things that are bad are forgiven. The things that are good, we'll just give glory to God because that was number four or whatever it was. So yeah, I'm willing to do it. So the gospel must be flourishing. You need to have the gospel is absolutely central, absolutely central in your group. Last one is why is it important. The gospel humility of a shared soul gives great glory to God. This is why it's important. The gospel freedom of a shared soul gives health to the mind, depth to the Christian fellowship and worship. It gives health to the mind and depth to the Christian fellowship and worship. So you want depth in your group. You want health in your group. Then do everything you can to pursue after having a shared soul with others. Remember, this is all orthopraxy, not orthodoxy. Paul is talking about how we live not what we believe here. So we talked about what we believe already based on Christ and how he's called us to live. But here we're talking about how does this look until he comes? How does this look in the context of a community? This is how it looks. It looks like people that are boldly going to go the distance and never quit. It's centered in on the gospel because we've been entrusted with it and we will live our lives knowing since we've been entrusted with it, we'll never ever take that lightly. Our dominant mindset in community is that we're givers, more than getters. That everything we do is based on the glory of God. I'm going to have an affectionate, desirous attitude towards everybody. And that I am going to share my soul with people. I'm going to open it up. And because the gospel is flourishing, I'm willing to be as vulnerable as possible. I'm willing to do whatever the Lord wants here. So this is, This is how I want to conclude, two ways. One, I want to plead for those that have ever thought of leading groups in our church. I want to plead with you to say, it's time for you to step forward and start serving. We absolutely need you to step forward. The best way for groups to grow in churches is new groups. Over and over and over, research shows New groups grow faster than existing groups. They just do. They always grow faster. So we need for people to start stepping up and leading new groups. And as you're leading these groups, have a heart that loves people and wants to lead people in the mission. The other thing I want to do is I want to pray for our community group leaders. I want to pray for our community group leaders. So what I want to do in closing in this service is this. I want you to think about who your leader is and I want you to pray for him. I'm gonna close in prayer and as I'm closing in prayer, you don't have to listen to me. (laughs) I'm gonna pray, the Lord can hear us all. I want you to pray for your community group leader. If you don't have a community group leader or you're not in one, I want you to pray about being in community. Lord, what would it look like? Find me one, let me go. And I'm gonna close this in prayer and then we'll stand and give glory to God. As it says, 
at the very end of verse 12, as he's talking about fathers, says, we exhorted you, encouraged you, charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Here it is. Who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. One day we'll be in his own kingdom. One day we'll be in the midst of the glory of God. And so let's worship right now like it's going to be that one day. I'm gonna pray and then we will uh, we'll worship together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love and mercy that you've given to us. I thank you that you've given us words for instructions for leaders. I pray, God, for our community group leaders at Remedy. God, that they would have these traits and where they know that they don't necessarily have them, that you would equip them and empower them with the spirit and the boldness of God that overfills them and spills out into the life of their groups. And that our groups would have the gospel central and flourishing, that we would all live as entrusted people with this gospel, fired up for mission, never ever parsing words for holiness, but pursuing Christ with everything we have. And the ultimate end, the ultimate end, as we share our souls with one another, is the glory of God. Because one day we will experience fully the glory of God. Be with us now as we worship and lift high your name and lift high your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name.